0: He nonetheless, we think, was biomechanically very um, well-built, like a brick house. So this, this <laughs> man would have been, his pelvis was wide, his femurs are just um, uh, very robust. He reflects the muscle attachment sites of someone who has marched for thousands of miles and probably was selected for his imposing physique. So. He was um, definitely an imposing figure on the battlefield. You are listening to History Man, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are at the Camden Visitor Center in Camden, South Carolina, recording a three part series sponsored by the Camden Visitor Center and the South Carolina Battleground Preservation Trust. The panel discussion surrounding the discovery and examinations of the soldiers. Found at the Battle of Camden site, reveal much about that revolutionary battle, the soldiers, and their sacrifices. In this episode, we will hear from Dr. Bill Stevens and Dr. Maddie Atwell on the forensic anthropology. such an honor to be involved in this project, and um, though Jim talks us up a lot, this was an amazing collaborative team effort of so many eager and uh, expert individuals. It was really awesome to be involved. Maddie and I are going to pr- uh, present the preliminary results of the study of the human remains of the soldiers at Camden, the bioarchaeology. Uh, we've chosen not to show uh, too many images of the bodies, of the bones, and we've converted some to sort of line drawings, just out of respect for their identity and the fact that they uh, fought and died that day. So we're going to tell you where we are with the studies so far and then um, lead into what what could take place in future understandings of the lives of these men.
1: All right. So uh, back in the fall, Bill and I were uh, invited, much to our excitement, to participate in the bioarchaeology of the burials at the Battle of Camden. So uh, bioarchaeology simplified is the study of human remains in an archaeological context in order to elucidate and gain insight into past life. So in the case of these burials, uh, we were tasked with figuring out, um, well first to exhume them and figuring out more about their lived experiences as well as uh, potential insight into their deaths. Uh, Many of you have been curious about us, uh, why coroners were involved. Um, Foremost, Bill and I are broadly bioarchaeologists, biological anthropologists, so trained in the study of the human skeleton and skeletal anatomy, as well as analyses involved in the study of such. Um, Particularly with me, I have worked uh, not only in archeological contexts, such as the Battle of Camden, but also in anatomical collections, uh, where people were medically dissected and placed into museum collections for the purposes of uh, comparative study. Um, in places like the Smithsonian as well as the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, where both places i have largely conducted work. So it was such a privilege to get back in the field and uh, be a part of this and not um, just our everyday work which is contemporary medical legal death investigation where we, um, we assist in the recovery of human remains in contemporary settings, um, identification as, as well as in certain cases help forensic pathologists with uh, cause of death.
0: Okay, so my training at uh, University of Georgia consisted of, uh, what, <laughs> too loud?
1: No,
0: was like University of Georgia eight. Oh, yay, yeah, <laughs> go, go dogs. But then, then I went to USC for grad school, so. <laughs> um, <laughs> consisted of, of getting involved in conflict uh, context, war, genocide context from the start. So um, m- our professors took us to Guatemala to assist in training a team, to recover the remains from mass graves of victims of genocide from the 1970s and 80s, um, mine populations. So we got into some grim stuff starting out, and but it has certainly taught me a lot in preparing for types of projects like this, where we're looking at um, the results of conflict between groups. Um, I've also worked for the UN in Cyprus, where. Uh, part of recovery and reconciliation between the Greeks and Turks is recover the remains, identify them, and return them to their loved ones. So that's a background for both of us that, that made us appeal to uh, Jim and Steve and the like for being involved in the project, and we have a good relationship with them for other projects, and we always answer when they call, and they're super to work with. So We developed a protocol for the field. So as Biological anthropologists, you know, we're we're interested in cause of death, traumatic injury, identification of a person. We're not in, interested in just the artifacts, um, though. We are we do have archaeological training. We wanted to ensure that you know there's a history of metal detection out here, finding an artifact and digging it up. But what does that do to a skeleton? It damages it, especially the sensitive parts we want to look at to learn about individuals. So. We developed a protocol in the field of being able to link uh, link artifacts with elements, bones of the skeleton, preserve that association, lift them in blocks of sand, transport, transport them careful, carefully arranged. Jim mentioned how fragile, friable, and um, de- uh, degraded they are. So it, you if you don't maintain anatomical order, you could lose it if they're just brought to us by archaeologists, um, unlabeled. Not that they would have been, but um, we wouldn't know how to put these individuals back together. The soldiers need to be put back together, separated from each other. One individual, if they're five in a grave, overlapping can be extremely complicated. We are tasked with determining minimum number of individuals. A lot of conflict situations involve mass graves and commingled remains where we don't know the exact number. Maybe they are a secondary deposit, decomposed bodies on the surface of the ground, buried after the fact, and jumbled together. That was the case in in a lot of areas of the world with uh, conflict and war. But here, we, we had some complicated scenarios that Maddie will talk about. We made a lot of diagrams in the field, a lot of measurements, and pondered these associations of five individuals buried together to ensure that we had each individual and in their, their, the correct arm with the correct individual, we look at things like the size of the bones, the articulations, the joints, and we're able to hopefully you know match up and determine every part every part of the individual. So those are some field sketches we use. Uh, they look kind of primitive but they are all parts of the putting our brains together and and really assessing the nature of the deposit and the associated musket balls, buttons, everything we find there. Um, Jim described transport with respect, recovery from the field in order to go to the laboratory and it was an honor to work with the veterans on the team and to carefully transport them back to the office for the cleaning and lab work that will ensue, that did ensue
1: so we concluded uh, field work uh, on November 8th and very literally the next day, November 9th, we were in our lab um, and we were fortunate um, to have uh, continued use and hangout sessions with our friends from Skia, archaeology friends and Department of Natural Resources to continue helping us in this uh, really large effort. Um, When we got into the lab, uh, we had to take a few days to figure out what we were going to do next. We had, at that point, developed a really good method out in the field, and none of us had done uh, a tackle-up project at this level with this many individuals who, in many cases, like Phil described, were still encased in soil matrices to protect them from, from damaging them in the field. So it took us a few days, and we got organized and made this uh, binder with inventory sheets and things like that. Every individual uh, was exhumed and carefully wrapped in foil and placed on trays. A person took up about six to ten trays, so it was no small feat with an organization and a a limited lab space, Um, but we made it work um, quite well, and uh, after we got our organization straight, we began the process of x-raying, which is the top photo. We have a mini x-ray machine at our coroner's office that has proved useful for many things. Um, And the bottom image shows uh, the cleaning process. So the soil matrix uh, needed to come off after uh, the bone had been x-rayed, which uh, the next slide shows you how critical that was for certain surprise findings. Um, And then we would photograph them um, before and after, so while they were still in soil, and then later when we got to deeper analyses. So this process was painstaking and meticulous and had to be. It was, it was very much important to take great care, particularly because these individuals, as everyone at this table has already said, very fragmented and fragile. They're 240-plus-year-old remains. Um, so we were fortunate uh, through our archaeology friend John Fisher, who's in this room with us. Um, he has a friend at the Warren Lash Lab, um, affiliated with Clemson and down in Charleston. That uh, worked with the Hunley uh, sub, and uh, Joanna Rivera, and she is a conservator, and she came up to Columbia and gave us her time to teach us a little bit about um, conserving uh, some of the remains. Some of the cortical surface of the bones, so the outer layer of the bone, was once it had been exposed, no, no longer underground, had uh, contact with oxygen and became even more fragile. Um, and for two people who work with human remains, often this is this is nerve-wracking for us, and uh, so it was very um, important to have someone help us with the, the conservation aspect. <laughs> this is uh, some, some of the surprise that, that we had, um, and these are examples of artifacts that we found while X-raying. Um, these don't look like uh, bones, because at this point, this is when the remains were still encased in soil. Um, so one image uh, shows uniform buttons uh, showing shanks next to an arm. Really cool um, to, to see that before. Um, we saw examples of buttons in the field, plenty of them, um, but this was really neat to see before it had even really seen the light of day since it was still encased in soil. Um, and the other one is a, the neck area, again, showing showing additional buttons. Uh, After the holidays, beginning in January, it was just the anthropology team, so uh, me and Bill and our uh, colleague and friend, Rachel Baker, who helped us in this process immensely. Um, At at this point, all of the remains had been unfoiled and uh, meticulously cleaned and dried, and so it was time for us to anatomically lay the skeleton out from from head to toe um, to begin our process of data collection, and this is much like we do during forensic analyses as, as well. So we uh, created a biological profile, which I'll explain more in the next slide, and um, go through with each individual from each burial, Um, and start doing our metric and non-metric assessments, so general bone measurements and scoring techniques uh, that are established in our field to uh, gain better insight into things like stature, as well as um, age estimations and um, disease, trauma, these sorts of things, and again, you'll notice the theme photographing and X-raying everything along the way. So uh, biological profile is very standard, um, and the first thing that we tackle for a forensic case of an unidentified individual. Um, So in the case of the burials from the Battle of Camden, every single person. Um, So we um, created, um, I'm sorry, we uh, estimated their biological sex uh, using uh, skeletal indicators that I'll explain. Uh, Age at death how old were these individuals when they died, their stature estimate or their their living height, uh, an ancestry estimate, and any sort of unique physical characteristic. We've gotten many questions and amazement and how much you can glean from the human skeleton, uh, which is why I got involved in this field early on in college, because it's just fascinating to be able to know so much uh, about a person by just just their bones. (laughs) Um, so, we uh, had age estimations uh, for, for these individuals. You'll notice some of them are kind of broad categories. The, the adults are broader than the, the juveniles, uh, for reasons that I will explain. Um, these individuals, again, were very fragmented and um, our, the methods that we employed varied due to these preservation limitations. Uh, the biggest uh, and most important skeletal indicators, uh, which Bill and I held out deep hope for with every excavation, um, are two indicators found on the, the pelvis, uh, the front as well as the back, and these are non-weight-bearing joints whose surfaces uh, degenerate pretty, uh, pretty uh, uniformly over one's life force, and this make them a really great uh, area of the body to estimate age at death. Um, we only had one cubic synthesis for one person. Um, and so, but really, every time we really did hold out oh, um. hope. But um, so we, we um, employed multiple methods, which is a good idea uh, no matter what. So well, we employed cranial suture closure, uh, so looking at the different bones uh, involved in the skull and how they fuse together and obliterate over time these suture lines, as well as dental occlusal wear, which are the two lower images, uh, one showing the method itself and one showing um, some of the mandibular molars from uh, the individual burial 12. Um, And this is the chewing surface of your tooth and how it wears over time. Um, And there are standards and uh, methods to refer to to uh, look at age based upon uh, this occlusal wear. So uh, the age at death estimations for the um, sub-adults, so people below the age of 20, of which we had five of the 14 individuals, which may come as a surprise. It was a big surprise to us as well. Um, it's easier to predict more uh, precise ages for these individuals due to the uh, predictability of um, growth and development. So the X-ray image is not from one of our individuals, um, but it is an example to show you these growth plates. You can see the line, this is the knee joint, so your lower femur and the upper part of your tibia, um, showing uh, growth lines. And uh, in the field, we noticed for burial 13, uh, that there were some extra bone and immediately realized this is this is you know an infused growth plate. so we knew at the time um, that these these were teenagers and when we got back into the lab we we're, we're better um, better equipped to estimate their ages more, more accurately so uh, these individuals um, the teenagers range in age from 15 to, to 19 years of, of age and again the nine adults um, you'll see broader age ranges over the age of 20 some have um, a a little bit more precision, 20 to 35, but there are broader age ranges, and I want you to know it's due to the limitations based upon the preservation. Another uh, part of the biological profile is stature estimation. Uh, people were particularly uh, curious about the Highlander's height, and he was a tall, burly man, and come to find out, he wasn't particularly tall, but I'm sure he was burly, and, and in fact, we know he was burly, but I'll
0: give that to, to,
1: to Bill. Um, In the case of these individuals, we used um, the maximum length of the femur, so the thigh bone, um, to measure uh, based upon an established formula in our field to estimate the living height of of individuals. For for us, the mean stature of of all of these, um, which we could measure 12 of the 14 due to preservation, there were about 5'7", and the graph shows you... um, uh, uh, the differences. We had an individual that was, you know, small as 5'2", That was uh, one of our teenagers, so he wasn't uh, done growing yet. And uh, burial twelve, he he was five five eleven, around five, five eleven. So he's quite tall. Um, other uh, bioarchaeological research into uh, Revolutionary War sites, which is few and far between, <laughs> um, actually uh, found the same uh, uh, mean stature, um, so the same average height, which was which was neat to see.
0: All right. During our analysis, we wanted to also assess indicators of the health of these individuals, disease, pathology, injury. Uh, We found pretty ubiquitous and uh, common among 19th century, 18th century skeletons is the indicators in the bones and teeth that show when someone was subjected to nutritional stress, maybe malnutrition, uh, fevers, febrile illness as a child when they're growing and developing they preserve as lines on your teeth and bones of growth disruption. So you can see where they stop growing because they're fighting an infection. They're facing health challenge. And then they resume growing, and a permanent mark is preserved. So throughout the teeth of most of the individuals, we saw enamel defects that are are common Um, that tell us, and we, we measured them. We know about the time they occurred during development, and they varied but they, they reflect the disease environment and the nutrition that these um, developing uh, individuals faced. So oral health also, by and large, you know, I've looked at Civil War soldiers. By and large, these guys, have, they were a young sample of individuals, but they had better teeth. So pre-sugar, there's not a lot of <laughs> carbohydrates and sugar involved, you know, they weren't getting that. Um, they don't have the level of, carries cavities that we see among 19th century and modern individuals, uh, and no overt signs of infection of the gums. Uh, A few few of the older individuals have lost teeth during life and showed the the closing and remodeling of the bone of the jaw when they lose their teeth and those sockets heal up. We also wanted to look at traumatic injury, of course, in the battlefield context, and anything that suggests uh, what led to these men's unfortunate death i put the highlander here so uh, a scotsman smoking a pipe so uh, with the dental health these guys had crowded dentition malocclusion rotated teeth they had all the things that that occurred pre-dentistry crowded mouths full of teeth so they also ground their teeth you know when when looking at these age estimates that that described we're comparing with published standards from different times in history but these guys probably ate a diet Including stone ground and cornmeal and flour, et cetera, that would have worn their teeth down in much greater, uh, much earlier decades in life than we face uh, these days. Um, Military requirements we are aware of published military requirements for having anterior teeth for the purpose of biting paper cartridges, et cetera. Um, So we don't know exactly, I don't, maybe Jim does, what those were and Steve. Um, back then but these guys also showed could potentially show us uh, occupational indicators so use of the teeth as a tool right holding a nail as a carpenter in your teeth I chose the Scottish man with the pipe because the 71st Highlander has a oval facet in his canine maxillary canine which is consistent with holding that pipe habitually that clay pipe in his mouth we also, uh, conjecture that a lot of the grinding in um, offset patterns in the mouth is the result of combat stress people are very stressed out. I ground my teeth a lot in graduate school I cannot imagine being in combat and, and what that could produce. But. Okay, so we knew there would be gunshot trauma. We have very large caliber soft lead musket balls <laughs> flying all around. We have the evidence for them in the ground. We have the evidence that Many of them impacted bone. The signature that they impacted bone. Um, we don't see what we see in the modern forensic context. We see, you know, in, a, in your average autopsy or in skeletal remains that we look look at with gunshot wounds. They show the effect of great energy, velocity, radiating fractures, beveling, concentric fracture patterns. Um, we saw more simple fracture patterns here so far at Camden. So. Um, I've looked at some public, published studies that show the rapid deceleration of large-caliber round balls and the fact that they, they uh, within you know uh, under 100 yards, are pretty ineffective uh, in terms of accuracy, Vel- velocity loss is extreme, and they bounce and roll on the ground. So the, the, the wounds we see in the men that we documented. Um, uh, produce rather simple fractures. They did, you know, embed on the bone and deform to the shape of the bone, and uh, reflect the lower, lower velocities and ballistics of the day. Where is the sharp force injury? Where are the bayonet wounds? Where are the cuttings uh, marked by uh, saber wounds, etc.? Sword wounds. We don't have it, so it is largely due to the the degradation of the bone. The ends of the bones didn't preserve well. Those are the spongy, you know, articular surfaces and and trabecular bone of your skeleton. They didn't survive very well. So if there were limbs that were cut off, we don't see the cut marks. Um, Also, the vertebrae and the ribs, you know, where you bayonet someone, those bones are gone because they're thin and because of the effects of time, acidity of the soil, and um, um, just general preservation of the skeletons. I thought this was pretty pretty telling. So Jim uh, produced lots of buck- five-gallon buckets of soil. And the purpose for having these buckets from where every man was buried was to place some soil in the coffins with them um, to, to be with them when they are reburied. So these were screened. They're free of any human remains and artifacts. I took them and dumped them where I had a hole in the yard to fill in, and this shows the color differential. Within one site, the, the battle of Canada the battleground, look at all the different colors of soil. So this explains the condition of some men versus the condition of others. So we have um, all the factors to consider of the soil type, the pH of the soil, whether it's acidic, like your average red clay soil, sand versus clay, the drainages of the in the declivity areas, the depth of burial, lots of factors, um, of course, the impact of agriculture and logging all affected the survival of the skeletons. So some of our graves were, or one grave in particular, was right in the line of where farmer John drove his tractor for years and years. The two ruts went right over the grave, and you could see the compression of the individuals. So uh, oh, the, the x-rays on the right are of, oh, the, uh, the femur of the Highlander up top, showing you the preservation level. It, I mean, that almost looks like a modern x-ray. Um, of the sandy beach soil, you know, just like beach sand. And then beneath it is one of our poorly preserved uh, limb bones from one of the areas in acidic, more acidic red clays.
1: So at this point, we're going to go through each of these seven graves um, and 14 individuals to give you their biological profiles and any sort of uh, traumatic injury, or in the event of no skeletal traumatic injury, um, associations with musket balls or other artillery that uh, Jim had helped us assign to each individual.
0: Here is our 71st highlighter. So he is one individual and given uh, a Christian burial by his men with his uh, hands kind of clasped near his pelvis. Um, pretty uh the deepest i'd say the deepest of the burials um he was positioned uh supine and we estimate he is male looking at all of the features of his skeleton he was not particularly tall and he was uh, an adult he did not have the signs of arthritis degenerative change that um, we see in middle to later adults so and um given his his uh, fairly average stature among the men. He nonetheless, we think, was biomechanically very um, well-built, like a brick house. So this this man would have been, his pelvis was wide, his femurs are just um, uh, very robust. He reflects the muscle attachment sites of someone who has marched for thousands of miles and probably was selected for his imposing physique. So. He was um, definitely an imposing figure on the battlefield. So um, for traumatic injury, we have shown the base of his skull, so right back here on the occipital bone. And this is our one of our most convincing ev- evidence of blunt force injury. So he was probably struck, could have been struck with the butt of a musket or bludgeoned with some other um, blunt force. Um, can't rule out. Projectile trauma, a musket ball, canister shot, but it does have the characteristics of a of a um, blunt force injury that was sustained at the time of death, and was he was buried with those fractures in place, um, and his skull was incomplete, so parts parts of the skull were absent as well. Uh, we we don't know if that's due to the fact that also that pine trees grew through parts of his skeleton, so. Um, Burial 4, as um, Doug described, we identified him in the process of taking an X-ray and receiving him in the laboratory and cleaning his remains um, as having Native American ancestry. This is based on the uh, shovel-shaped characteristics of his incisors, which are uh, mean uh, Asian ancestry. In the context of our history, this means Native American ancestry in the New World. Um, lots of the other guys, we don't have an ancestry estimate because their faces were not preserved; they did not survive, so we can't measure the face and say this person was likely European American or African American. We, we we don't know. We you know we have assumptions about the battlefield and the demographics. Um, burial four was uh, finished developing, 20 to 35. We estimate we may be able to refine these age estimates going forward with further study. And he was quite tall, 5'8", 5'10". And we identified no artifacts with him and no evidence for injury.
1: Uh, burial 9 uh, consisted of 5 commingled uh, US continental soldiers. Um, and we have uh, pictures here of um, the individuals laid out in our lab in the anatomical position as well as our, uh, the middle picture is in the field but we were trying to figure out after they've been exposed just who was who and where, um, as well as a great sketch done by archaeologist John Fisher um, to represent uh, these, these people in, in the grave. Um, they were all supine, so they were uh, face, face up for the most part or bodies up, sometimes faces turned in different ways um, and again co-mingled, arms across uh, each other in some cases multiple pelvises on top of each other. It uh, it really took Bill and I a a long time uh, uh, with help of everybody on site to to figure out um, how to begin exhuming them. Uh, Their age at death uh, ranged from 16 to to 45, and I'll uh, go through each individual. So 9A and 9B, we've estimated both are uh, biological males. Uh, uh, 9A is a, an adult over the age of, of 20. Uh, due to preservation, we were not able to get more precise than that. Uh, a younger individual, between 5'2 and 5'5. And this individual had some trauma, which we have pictures of on the next slide, so I'll hold off on that. 9B, um, so uh, we mentioned that uh, the barrel 13 consists of three teenagers. We didn't realize until we got back to the lab that this commingled grave of five people also contained two additional teenagers, so it upped our number in a a surprising way. This individual, based upon his growth plates, was about 16 to 18 years of age, um, but rather tall, between 5'7 and 5'9 and had no evidence for any skeletal traumatic injury. This is a picture of uh, uh, his right upper arm, so the right humerus. And this is one of only about four individuals that we have what we call NC2 trauma. So this musket ball was found right on this individual's humerus um, at the time of excavation. Uh, the image alongside it is um, an x-ray uh, showing this uh, association. Uh, once the musket ball was picked up, it was heavily deformed and contoured to the surface of the bone. Um, and underneath, as you can see in the x ray quite well, um, a, a very likely perimortem fracture um, that uh, occurred or, around the time of this individual's death. Uh, two additional individuals, all also uh, estimated to be males, uh, another teenager, this is our second one of the five, um, between 16 and 19, 5'6 uh, to 5'8 living stature. Um, and he, um, several of these individuals had um, uh, fractures of their thigh bones, their their femurs, and we uh, think that it's likely due to rough handling of the body post-mortem when these individuals were being put into into the grave. And we don't see it as, a, as something that they endured during life. Um, 9D was between 30 and 40 years old. Um, between 5'4 and 5'7 in terms of his stature. Um, And although we didn't have any evidence for skeletal traumatic injury, um, Jim located a musket ball um, near the right shoulder of this individual. And last but not least, the fifth individual in in this uh, burial. uh, We were not able to determine um, an estimation for biological sex due to uh, very poor preservation. Um, We believe him to be between 20 to 45 uh, years of age at the time of death, and between 5'4 and 5'7. And again, another individual that doesn't demonstrate any skeletal signs of injury, but had um, a heavily deformed musket ball from the abdominal region, which, if you recall, Bill talking about the ribs as well as the vertebral column that
0: was, was not well preserved at all. Burial 10 was one individual in a grave. And he was very shallow. The, the femur, Jim mentioned, the knees would have been protruding from the ground. He was likely impacted by logging operations. Um, he is supine, and he shows us some interesting features about the burial. So he's in a position of having his legs um, flexed like that, probably reflecting burial after, during decomposition, maybe a day or two later in the hot August um, sun. So he was like the bloated, decomposing body that was buried. Um, he may have been dug into by animals or disturbed by other means. He is shows evidence of secondary burial. So up top in, in the sketch there, you can see the, a, a pile of what represents a pile of arm bones. They are stacked like Lincoln logs. They were placed back in the grave. The skull is oriented. Entirely wrong, and the mandible is somewhere else. Um, so he was likely buried by a good Samaritan after the fact of his bones being disturbed. Historical accounts um, mention the bones line littering the battlefield after the fact, those who did not get buried or those who were disturbed by um, feral hogs, dogs, etc. He is estimated to be male and one of our older individuals, 40 to 50, maybe more and couldn't determine his stature because the long bones were not very intact. He couldn't measure a femur that had been plowed through or run over by logging trucks. No evidence for trauma, but he did have a, a buckshot recovered near him and a musket ball near his knee. Um, and as I said, that he shows that sign of secondary burial. Burial 11 consisted of two individuals together and they were about 36 centimeters deep on average, and they are both adults, 20 to 45 is our estimate so far, uh, positioned supine in the grave. 11A estimated male based on measuring the uh, features of his bone, of his pelvis, and skull, looking at his jaw and features of the skull. He is tall, somewhere 5'7 to 5'10, and had no evidence for any injury. 11B. Was one of one of those where we found with with um, radi- radiology up front, we found you know a metal projectile, lead projectile, associated with his skull. It's buckshot, which is on his parietal bone. Um, this may have been not even penetrated the skull. This in autopsies we often see shotgun pellets that have lost energy um, retained in the scalp of an individual. So he could have you know caught some buckshot and it's it's there. Um, there was a defect. Underneath the butt butt shot, but lead is so heavy that when it gets compressed in soft bone, it's gonna, you know, we didn't see fractures or anything. It was likely just in his scalp. And burial 12 is a continental soldier who was a bit disturbed and missing a leg bone, one individual. Um, He was supine, estimated to be male based on the features of his skull and long bones and pelvis. And 35 to 45 was our our best estimate using certain methods. And he's our tallest individual, five, 10 to six feet tall. So um, we did not document any skeletal injury on him.
1: Uh, The final burial that we'll uh, tell you all about tonight uh, consists of three individuals. And um, this is a burial of the uh, three teenagers. Um, they were all uh, supine, so face up, uh, commingled, uh less less complicated than the five people, but still um, still a challenge in its ways. As, as you can see, our field sketch with our notes, um, and just like burial tins, shows signs of of bloating, so early early onset um, uh, decomposition, and then buried it, uh, shortly thereafter. And again, these are adolescents between 15 and 19 years of age. 13A, um, it was estimated to be a biological male between 17 and 19 years at, at death um, with a stature of 5'5 to 5'8. Um, and these are images of um, this individual's lower spine, his lumbar spine and the lower back. Um, the first image on uh, this side is in situ, so in the field, this is what we, what we discovered, um, is a musket ball in this individual's spine um, and then you see the radiographic image of, um, of the, the, impact, the impact. And um, the one uh, furthest this way is after we, we got done cleaning and uh, we're showing this association. You can see that it would have been quite complicated and it could have e- easily been missed as an impact. Um, given the fragmented nature and the poor preservation of these remains, it was really critical for us to have seen this um, in, in the field it, itself. Um, in addition to this gunshot wound in his lower spine, um, there was another musket uh, ball recovered in the vicinity of his left elbow. The final two individuals uh, in, in this grave, um, uh, one was estimated as biological male, uh, the other, again, t- uh, we were un- unable to determine due to preservation. Um, uh, 13B was set 17 to 19 years at death, and taller, 5'8 to 5'10. Um, he also did not have any uh, evidence for skeletal injury, um, but did have um, a musket all recovered from his right elbow. So one on the left, the previous individual, and this guy, in the, in the right. Our final individual, 13Z, is our youngest of, of the whole 14 individuals um, with an estimation of about 15 to 18 years of age, um, based upon his again, his growth plates and the lack of fusion in, in many places, including the upper arm, knees, upper neck, upper thigh, um, and places uh, located on the long bones. Um, he may have had a possible perimortem uh, trauma. Um, On his right parietal phone on the side of his, on the side of the skull.
0: Okay, so where are we going from here? So, uh, yesterday we put the soldiers in their coffins and sealed them, and today they were escorted from the lab to here. Um, We have retained, with the permission and the interest of the directors of the project, uh, DNA samples of molar teeth, um, certain other single-rooted teeth, and hard, preserved, compact bone from the base of the skull or the long bones. We are going to submit um, quality control samples to an ancient DNA lab to see if, if we can sequence DNA profiles complete enough to do ancestry, genetic genealogy studies, and link um, related individuals to these individuals who died that day So that remains to be determined. We'll find that out in the coming months as to whether the DNA is too degraded to work with or whether it is um, sequences and produces good profile. Um, There are many interested parties who have ancestral ties to the Battle of Camden. We also, there remains the possibility of submitting to databases to compare and generate relationships based on the. Um, the DNA, the genetics of these individuals. Uh, Dr. Delacoba from USC is going to be conducting some isotopic studies, so looking at carbon, nitrogen, oxygen ratios, strontium in the bones, chemical indicators that can tell us information about the soldiers. Where were they born? Where, where did they grow up as their, their teeth were forming, as their bones were forming? The signatures of their environment, the drinking water, the geology can be preserved in these hard tissues of the body and tell you where they came from geographically, tell you about their diet, uh, and other such, uh, where they might have gone later in life, migration patterns. They're all um, using these types of bone chemistry studies. Um, She's also taken soil samples. We collected soil samples from each individual that may reflect um, the uh, abdominal area, the contents of, parasite load that these individuals were carrying they were we know they were not well they were uh, had, had burdens of illness dysentery, poor rations and um, testing for that sort of thing could give us more information about their their suffering uh, and untimely death. Uh,
1: a big question uh, that we got very early on in, in the project and a big hope uh, that we maintained throughout uh, was the possibility of facial reconstruction. Um, But facial reconstruction involves uh, having the bones of uh, the face uh, present. And the bones of the face are very fragile, thin bone. And unfortunately, I think it will come as no surprise that they did not preserve well. Um, So that is uh, something that we're sad about, but hold up uh, uh, hope in in the future for uh, advances in uh, in reconstruction. for the parts of the face and mandible that did uh,
0: survive. Yeah, we have had the pleasure of working with uh, state law enforcement's forensic artists over the years in both for identification, generating leads for identifying individuals in modern times, but also in reconstructing the faces of 19th century individuals. We've done that a lot when remains are found. it really requires the measurements of the eyes, the cheekbones, the zygomatics, and um, the, the things, as Maddie said, that don't survive very well in acidic soil. Um, we took great efforts to preserve, conserve the skulls, digitize them. We have 3D renderings. Um, so in the future of the project, might hold that some are better preserved. We, we shall see um, with the ability to look at, um, approximate the face of one of the soldiers, but not yet. We'd like to thank everyone who supported and encouraged this project, Um, to thank our boss, Coroner Rutherford, for allowing us to assist these agencies in this important historical project to protect and preserve and rebury these individuals. Uh, Everyone else listed here, and those are the coffins draped uh, yesterday and in their first repose, I guess, at our Um, external area ready to be received and placed on the Humvees. And that's all we have. Thank you so much.